been a somber 20 years since the events of September 11, 2001, when a national trauma took place in the United States. But as I noted recently in an op-ed for the 20th anniversary of 9-11 for Mint Press News, many in the U.S. and even prominent voices in independent media continue to avoid any sort of reckoning about the more than questionable official story of 9-11. Fewer still even bother to consider the case of the 2001 anthrax attacks, which followed shortly thereafter. The collective failure of the American public to reconcile the true nature of these extraordinary events 20 years on has muddled our present and today threatens our future, as many have again become enslaved by the official story of the newer and different yet similar crisis currently unfolding around us. In order to better reflect on the events that took place 20 years ago and what they mean for today, I am joined today by Graham McQueen. Graham is a retired professor from McMaster University, where he founded the Center for Peace Studies. He subsequently became the co-editor of the Journal of 9-11 Studies and went on to write the 2001 Anthrax Deception, the case for a domestic conspiracy, which is unsurprisingly from its title, about the anthrax attacks. He has consistently been one of the most careful and meticulous and rational voices in the 9-11 Truth Movement, and I'm very happy to have him on the program today. So thanks for being here, Graham. How are you? I'm doing well, Whitney, and thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, my pleasure. So I, I first off, uh, a lot of people, a lot has been said since, you know, we're recording this uh, after the 20th year, uh, the exact anniversary of 9-11. And, um, but in this episode, I wanted to focus on um, two, two major overarching aspects, I guess you could say, um, of the events of 2001, which have sort of been relegated um, to the, uh, the status of forget, 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 as opposed to never forget in the case of the Twin Towers, but of course, this conversation may uh, branch into that as well. Um, but with the case of that, um, on September 11th, 2001 itself, um, I wanted to discuss, um, uh, first off, um, you know, Building 7, uh, which, or World Trade Center Building 7, which, um, I think most people these days even, um, are specifically familiar, um, you know, with the video footage of, uh, that building's collapse on that day in the absence of, of being struck by, um, a plane or large object. Um, and so I wanted to, um, get your view on why Building 7 matters aside from the apparent, uh, you know, free fall into its footprint in seven seconds, uh, beside its obvious inconvenience for the official narrative. Um, so, uh, could you tell us a little bit about, um, what was in Building 7, i.e. who had offices there? Um, was there advance warning, um, of its collapse and what did witnesses, um, around around and within building 7 I have to say about those events at the time thanks whitney well i can i can touch on at least a couple of those questions um but um let me first say something about why i think this remains important um i was kind of shocked uh, a few years ago when a young student at the university told me that um the term building 7 had become a kind of uh, shorthand for you're a conspiracy nut. He said, you know, on Twitter and stuff, all you had to do is say, Building 7, and people would go, oh, my God, and roll their eyes. And I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, it reminds me of the way some people treated the grassy knoll 
um, in the JFK assassination, they'd say, oh, no, another grassy knoll guy. And they'd roll their eyes. And that was supposed to mean you were a nut and you were slightly insane or stupid. The truth, of course, is that if you look into the grassy knoll, you see obviously there were shots from the grassy knoll. There's no question about it. And um, it's quite an accomplishment to have turned that obvious fact into a symbol of of the nutty theory. Same thing with WTC7. Um, some people think we shouldn't keep talking about the collapse of these buildings and, and, oh, my God, not Building 7 again. But the reason we do is because these are clinchers. I mean, you can talk – I mean, you know, I, I belong to the uh, 9-11 consensus panel for years, and we dealt with all kinds of different issues with relation to 9-11. But I keep coming back to the buildings because, I'm sorry, folks, you can't argue with things like the laws of gravity, you know, and there's a good reason why people come back to the buildings. There really isn't any room for for debate here. Now, when you ask about me and my relationship to it, first, I, I thought I had nothing to say about it. I mean, I'm not an engineer, an architect, or any kind of building professional. But then I thought, <clears throat> wait a minute, I've read the 10,000 or 12,000 pages of the World Trade Center Task Force report, which uh, was released to the public after a lawsuit by the New York Times in 2005. I've read that, and I was struck by the number of members of the Fire Department of New York who knew about this collapse before the building came down. And this is really weird, because no steel skyscraper in the world has ever come down like this before. And it's very hard to imagine having foreknowledge of an unprecedented event, if you get my point. It's immediately fishy. So I went through in my painstaking and somewhat boring way, and I I went through all the 10,000 pages again, and I pulled out every time when the firefighters referred to knowing about this in advance. <clears throat> Excuse me, and I wrote an article for the Journal of 9-11 Studies. I assume it can still be found there on foreknowledge um, of, uh, of Building 7 coming down. I'm trying to remember what I called the article. Oh, yeah, Waiting for Seven was the name of the article because that's what one of the firefighters said. He said, we stood around for hours waiting for seven to come down. <laughs> and I thought, really? <laughs> how interesting is that? So I drew up these tables about how many people knew and when did they know. And and by the time I'd finished it, I realized, yeah, this really is impossible. You know, you couldn't know that. And then I gave a talk at uh, University, University of Hartford on the topic, and that allowed me to look at new sources of information, the TV coverage, not only the well-known BBC <laughs> mistake, where they thought it had already come down, but also CNN and Fox. So, having said all that, what is your question? <laughs> you had three questions, and I don't remember. I don't remember what they are. Well, it was sort of an amalgamation of questions, I guess you could say, but, you know, I'm like you sort of alluded to earlier, Building 7, for better or for worse, has become more of a meme than anything else, I think, at this point in time for people, either people that are uh, proponents of uh, the idea that something very fishy went on there, and, and you know, in, in the sense the meme has just become the, the free fall. Um, the collapse of the building itself. Um, and on the other side, of course, you have the people that use that as sort of a, a, a blanket term for um, naughty conspiracy theorists. So, yeah. um, 
uh, essentially, I was, I was just hoping that you could shed some, uh, light on why building seven matters aside from just, um, it being inconvenient to the official narrative. It is the building we are, you know, the, the collapsed building on 9-11 we are told, uh, doesn't really matter. That is never, uh, talked about for whatever reason, but, you know, it's more than just, uh, you know, a free fall, right? So. Well, building seven was a very robust 47 story, uh, steel skyscraper, which was right across the street from the North Tower. And it was supposed to play um, an, excuse me, an important role <clears throat> if there were a terrorist attack in New York. The mayor had decided that his OEM, his operations, <coughs> sorry, um, can't remember what it's called now, emergency um. operations. The Office of Emergency Management at the time. That's right. That's right. That's right. That would be, I think, on the 23rd floor. And uh, so that was supposed to be the place where responses to terrorism attacks could could take place. But instead, of course, people who got there were told to leave immediately. And uh, they did. Most of them got out. And uh, and then the building (laughs) came down in this symmetrical freefall. Now, of course, it wasn't just the Office of Emergency Management of of the mayor. It was also it had, I think, the Secret Service. Uh, I think it had an FBI office. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, you know, so these are going to be highly secure places, you know. It's not something where you just wander into it and start putting dynamite around here and there. So obviously... If, in fact, it was a controlled demolition, and frankly, that's obvious. We've known that for years. Steve Jones was writing about that and illustrating that in 2005, 2006. And now, of course, we have the Halsey report from the University of Alaska. So, yeah, it was a controlled demolition. And, and, And we know that if it was, then obviously it was an inside job. There's no way... Al-Qaeda operatives would have been allowed into a building that was that secure. Right. From what I understand as well, there were also reports that there were CIA offices that were uh, not officially labeled, but admitted to existing within Building 7 after its collapse and that the CIA had sent um, some sort of reconnaissance crew uh, to scrape through the rubble following its uh, its collapse on September 11th. But like you say, um, if you have CIA offices, Secret Service offices, FBI offices, um, the Office of Emergency Management of the mayor of New York, which... Um, by the way, that office was uh, tons and tons of money, bulletproof glass, uh, tons exactly. of um, uh, alterations and modifications made to its structure to make it able to withstand all sorts of various insane calamities, um, you know, was just abandoned right um, in the beginning of the day, several hours um, uh, before the building actually, Building 7 actually came down. Yes. Um, it is quite odd that they would order everyone out um, <laughs> um, if that is supposed to be the the very well-established HQ. And um, it's worth pointing out that this office was established there by a fellow um, who I'm sure you're familiar with uh, named Jerome Hauer, who we can talk a little um, 
about <laughs> talk a little more about later because he also does sort of uh make a more than just a casual reappearance in relation to um anthrax attacks and and the narratives before and after that that are relevant uh, to that to those events um but he was the person who spent um admittedly in the new york times uh, profiled him before 9-11 um, as just spending all day thinking about building collapses and various <laughs> calamities, but it lists various calamities that he liked to spend time thinking about and, uh, says, uh, it, the, that list ends with building collapse, building collapse, building collapse. They, uh, wrote it three times. Howard really emphasized it. So, um, it's just underscores how odd, uh, its abandonment, uh, was. So. Yes. Well, if I could just comment on that, uh, <clears throat> when I first read, the New York Times article on Jerome Hauer, I had to laugh. It said that his mother had got him a job in the hospital looking at, um, you know, helping, I think, with autopsies or something and learning how to cut people open. And he became fascinated by innards <laughs> and that he applied this fascination to the yes. innards of buildings. He's a fun yeah, guy. <laughs> he's been a fun guy from the beginning. So then it said he was he became obsessed with the innards of buildings and he went around New York, you know, looking for all, at all the collapsed buildings and getting ex samples and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, how interesting is that? You know, and then he ends up being on the scene when building seven comes down. I mean, building seven's collapse is of such importance historically that I sometimes, um, well, I, I'm not sure what to compare it to. Uh, it's it's not just the building collapse. In other words, it has an enormous political importance. It stands at a, a crux of history when one global conflict um, framework, the Cold War, is being replaced, at least temporarily, I can't say permanently, <clears throat> by the global war on terror, a new conflict framework with which, you know, George Bush is very open about it. He talks about it and we don't have to worry about Russia anymore. Now we have to worry about rogue states with weapons of mass destruction. That includes anthrax, of course, and the terrorists that they sponsor. So building seven, and I suppose I should say the building World Trade Center um, in general, because we had seven buildings, which all mysteriously disappeared. I mean, they were all destroyed. Okay, on 9-11, think about it, by two planes. I mean, the whole thing is so absurd on the face of it. But Building 7 is the key because it wasn't hit by a plane. And nobody can start talking about plane damage. There wasn't any. Well, there wasn't any. There was there was some damage from the North Tower when it came down, but it was trivial. It wasn't nearly enough to cause collapse of this building. So, yes, we're right to talk about it, no matter what people try to call us. And and to insist that it be studied. I mean, when I wrote my book, I decided to call it the 2001 Anthrax Deception, colon, the case for a domestic conspiracy. And I had a lot of people telling me, oh, for God's sake, man, don't call it a conspiracy. This has such a bad word right now. You're just playing in their hands. And I said, no, I don't think so. I'm taking a stand. I'm saying there are conspiracies. In fact, there's a lot of conspiracies. And um, some of the elites of the world spend a lot of their time conspiring. And I'm going to prove in the book that it was a conspiracy. I'm not going to just call it that. I'm going to say, this is how I define conspiracy. And let's look at the evidence. So, sorry, I'm starting to ramble. But Building 7 is, is key there. And that's why, uh, for example, the uh, 
the Halsey report that where um, I don't remember if it's three or four guys at the University of Alaska spent over three years studying in detail the um, destruction of that building and said, you know, the official narrative of the National Institute for the Standards of Technology is simply wrong. It is absolutely but the only way after enormous amount of time spent on simulations and complex software, the only way they could get that building to come down in a way that mimicked the actual fall that we see, you know, on videos is when you know, all the columns of the building were removed virtually simultaneously. And that's the only way it'll come down that way, folks. And of course, we all know there's only way that can be done, and that's through controlled demolition. They don't use the word because that wasn't part of their project aim, but it's clear that's the only way it could come down. So yeah, we're right to insist and to keep talking about this building, just like we're right to keep talking about the grassy knoll. Well, what I find interesting um, also is the fact that people who, uh, I guess you could say they poo-poo um, any sort of questioning about the official narrative of, of Building 7 um, in particular is um, in order to do that and to dismiss it entirely, you also had to dismiss um, some very compelling um, eyewitness accounts, uh, not just of uh, rescue or, or first responder personnel, but also people that, you know, worked in that building or were within that building at the time and heard things consistent with um, this controlled demolition theory. Are you familiar with any of those? Yeah, although most of my own work was done on the eyewitnesses to the Twin Towers, and I've continued to do that work. There weren't as many eyewitnesses that talked about explosions with Building 7, but there certainly are some. And Barry Jenkins is one of the most important. He worked for the city of New York. He was one of those who came to the Office of Emergency Management on the 23rd floor. He thought, this is where we're supposed to be. He got there. There's still hot coffee sitting on the desk. It's clear it's been abandoned very recently, and he's told to get out. So he, he and the guy he's with, whose name escapes me at the moment, a lawyer, I believe, um, you know, start heading down the stairs. And then there's an enormous explosion, which knocks out the stairs beneath them. And they have to retreat to an earlier floor. And they figure they're probably dead, but they manage to get rescued. But, you know, and then, of course, Barry Jenkins talks about this, or he did talk about it till he mysteriously disappeared. We were told suddenly he had died a few days before the official report on the collapse of Building 7 was released. Um, you know, there's a whole tale there about Barry Jenkins and what he said and what he uh, was worried about and how he suddenly disappeared. Yeah, he's he's a key witness because he was inside the building. And I think it's pretty clear that they they screwed up with Building 7. I remember David, David Ray Griffin and I talking about this once, and he said, it would be nice to write a book someday called 9-11 Screw-Ups. Because they did. They made all kinds of mistakes. And Building 7 was a biggie, which is one of the reasons we got to keep insisting on it. I suspect it was meant to come down very shortly after the North Tower came down. There are reports of explosions around that time. And that would have allowed them to make some kind of sense out of it. They could claim that the destruction of Building 7 had destroyed the foundations or some such nonsense. But it didn't come down. And I think explosions going off in the building show that they were trying to bring it down, but they couldn't. 
And then you go to CNN, <laughs> like about 45 minutes before it comes down. The news anchor, Aaron Brown, says, and we're getting reports now that Building 7 at the World Trade Center either has come down or is coming down. But here's the thing that really struck me. Aaron Brown says it's either coming down or it's, or it's about to come down. And he looks at his monitor and it seems to be standing there just fine. So he turns around because he's on a rooftop not too far from the World Trade Center. He turns around and looks directly at the building. Okay, I love this. And then he says, you perhaps at home can see this more clearly than I can. <laughs> and then you would think you would think after that screw up that CNN would kind of retreat into the closet and say, "Whoa, we made a big mistake there." But instead, they keep putting the building Building Seven prominently on camera from then until it comes down. And the, and the caption is interesting; it keeps changing. Building seven on fire may collapse. And then finally, a couple of minutes before it comes down, building seven on fire on verge of collapse. I mean, who are they kidding? You can't tell that with a steel frame building. The building doesn't look any different. It's standing there. Dum, dum, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm sorry if I'm rambling here. But to me, this is these are the absurdities we're expected to believe. Well, it, you know, it it is necessary in order, I mean, pretty much what the situation we have today, and this is even with a lot of people in independent media and independent commentators, um, is that any deviation from the official story is considered abs absurd or laughable or just totally insane. Um, yeah. But really, if you bother to objectively look at any number of aspects about the events of uh, 9-11 in New York. Uh, there are numerous things that, as you uh, just pointed out, are very absurd, very crazy, and that in order to um, completely accept the official story, it's necessary to also then officially endorse and accept um, a lot of those absurdities. Um, and, you know, that just seems kind of uh, odd, probably, uh, <laughs> to people like you would meet and others who are... Um, uh, quite open about um, our questioning of the official story. It's even stranger to me, though, when you consider that the official story, which I guess uh, for most people is uh, the 9-11 Commission report, um, the people that wrote that report, uh, including the chair and vice chair of that commission, say it's flawed, it's incomplete, um, it can't answer uh, major important questions about the events of that day. Um so, you know, it's essentially in, in a way almost like a, uh, one needs to essentially in, in, engage in some very creative, uh, mental loop de loops, I guess, for, uh, lack of a, uh, of a yeah. meaner term, <laughs> um, yeah, in order yeah. to, um, completely accept that when its own authors, uh, decline to fully, um, endorse it. So why do you think um so many people and and we also have some potentially well-meaning individuals in this group, don't get me wrong, right? Um but why do you think there's this uh still such a struggle to publicly uh question the official narrative when it has as you have already pointed out in just talking about building 7 alone. Um have so many uh you know, it has so many problems. You know, years ago cuz I started studying this stuff really seriously in 2005 and I did this intensely to the exclusion of everything else for quite a few years. 
So early on, I thought, you know, it's boring as hell, but I really have to read the 9-11 Commission Report carefully and read it just as an ordinary scholar, which is what I was, as an ordinary scholar would read this and look at the footnotes and try and sort it out. <clears throat> and I was baffled. <clears throat> and, and, you know, because it, 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 what is it? You know, is it a, is it a journalistic report? Is it an academic report? Is it a governmental official? Because it doesn't meet the standards of any of those things. I mean, I, I kept looking at all this stuff about, you know, Al-Qaeda this and Al-Qaeda that, <clears throat> the hijacking and all this. And I kept looking at the footnotes. And again and again, it would say KSM, blah, blah, blah. And I thought, well, KSM stands for Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. Um, but, but, but what are they talking about specifically? Well, they're talking about uh, things that he said. Well, when did he say them? Well, he said them when he was being in interviewed by the FBI. What were they doing to him? Oh, well, they were torturing him. Uh, and and are we, the, the authors of the 9-11 Commission Report, allowed to be in the room when they're torturing him? No. Are we allowed to see the actual notes on those sessions? No. No. No, we're giving this about third hand. And, and it turned out even mainstream sources had to admit that a lot of the crucial evidence in that document was based on stuff given under torture, which, you know, legally should be out of the question, but also morally and epistemologically. Right. How can you how can you do that and how can you rely on that? So the 9-11 Commission report is, as far as I'm concerned, a piece of morally corrupt fiction. And, uh, you know, and that it, it sits at the bottom of my my uh, book bookcase, which is where it belongs. Now, you were you were talking about um, how can people, you know, smart, well-meaning people still believe the official story of 9-11? Um, I'm not I'm not sure. I guess you, you have to be an expert in psychology to work this out. But I made my own struggle some years ago. Um, and it was a struggle with the community that I belonged to, had belonged to for a long time. I mean, ever since I became a young adult, I decided that I was on the left politically. And that was based on what that meant in my country, Canada. It certainly didn't mean Stalinism or anything. It meant being in favor of social justice. It meant you're not a flag waver. It meant being against against racism. It meant a number of things like that. And it, it appealed to me. And I thought, oh, these are my... These are this. These are my colleagues. These are my friends, and yet suddenly, when the 9/11 thing came up, they were all dismissing me, and they weren't willing to look at it. And uh, even people like Noam Chomsky, who had been an important figure in my life, um, both you know, right from the time I first saw him give a talk in Harvard Square in Cambridge when I was still a student all the way through and then getting to meet him and having him and his wife over to my house and all. He had been an important mentor. But not only did he not accept the questioning of 9-11, he began insulting people who questioned it. And I thought, well, he's, he's, you're going too far, Noam. I've been defending you for years against people who just call you a Zionist shill and stuff like this. But now you've gone too far. Because you haven't looked at this and you have no right to ridicule anybody. So I wrote this article, which is on the Internet, if I can remember where. I think it was on Global Research and it was also recently republished on um, Off Guardian. And the main title is Beyond Their Wildest Dreams. 
And then there's a subtitle on, you know, the, the, uh, the left in North America and their inability to imagine that this, that, that these might be false flag attacks. And by these, I mean, 9-11, JFK, a number of things like this. And I tried to be really charitable in that article. I said, look, I'm going to assume that these are well-meaning people. They're not agents or shills. They're trying their best. And I said this on, on the basis of having known some of these people. And, um, and so I, I, I talked about it as they literally can't imagine that this could be true. And, and so they dismiss it as conspiracy theory or whatever. And because they've dismissed it, they, they never look into it. They never look into it. So even the most basic facts, they're unaware of it. They're simply unaware of them. And the longer this goes on and the more they start getting called names by the people in the movement, yeah, Zionist shill, then of course the more stubborn they become and they refuse to look at it. And I wrote the article. I still like the article, which is why I was glad that it was republished the other day. But I got a lot of criticism, of course, people saying, you're far too easy on these people, far too easy. You know, this is the incompetence theory again, you know, and, and so that's OK. I don't mind being criticized, um, you know, and it's quite possible I am too easy on them. It's hard for me after, you know, somebody's been a mentor and a friend to turn around and say, you know, you Zionist chill. Um, so uh, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm too generous with them. But I still stand by that article. Well, I recently wrote about this phenomena uh, for, for Mint Press News, which um, I, I used to work for them full time. Now I uh, contribute pretty um, uh, occasionally um, for them now. And um it was specifically about this question, and I sort of saw it as coming down really into two camps. Um, there are either people that know better, um, particularly within media, um, and choose not to um, choose to be dismissive because as a means of uh, self-preservation careerism. Coming right. from, from that space. And of course, that's not exclusive to media. We have, um, academics and, and other professionals and other people in that category as well. Um, but there's also a class of people that I think are trying, are, are very desperate to preserve a particular worldview, um, that yes. by, yes. um, not believing what is essentially a fairy tale about what happened on September 11th, 2001, you know, they would have to fully explore the implications of what, um, more than the official story essentially, uh, means, um, not just, uh, you know, for the events of that day, but obviously much broader implications of that, um, that take us uh, today into the present. Um, and so I, I, you know, I see it ultimately that becoming those two things, uh, resulting in issues of, um, really boiling down to, to, to matters of, of, of fear, um, people being afraid and also, um, you know, just a lack of, uh, courage among people who I think should, um, know better. And now that, you know, it's been 20 years, we certainly don't have, um, 20 more years to, to mull it over, um, Especially considering circa, certain circumstances and a lot of, um, what, what you described, um, uh, just, a just a minute ago, of course, a lot of that is again, um, taking place with the official narrative of, of, of current events, um, that it's, uh, treated as patently ridiculous and insane to question, um, public health authorities and certain politicians, um, 
the motives of certain uh, large pharmaceutical companies with histories of um, very long, lengthy histories of corruption um, and uh, of harming people that seem to have been uh, readily dismissed um, by many. And, uh, you know, among other things, but it's essentially sort of um, a voluntary enslavement to a narrative. It's just very, um, it's uh, both disturbing and fascinating, <laughs> I guess, from my perspective. Well, I, I agree with all that, Whitney. Um, when I looked at my fellow academics, I see what I call timidity. I mean, there's a kind of caution that's good where you say, I'm not going to rush in and say this is an inside job if I haven't looked at it properly. That's good. Be cautious. Be, take your time. Look for the evidence. But there's a thin line between that kind of caution and straight out timidity or even cowardice. And it's all over the place in the university. We saw it on issues like 9-11, but my God, look now. They're supporting the vaccination, forced vaccination of students and, and of academics and staff. And it's just, it's an outrage. But as you say, there's also a category of people <clears throat> who mean well, but who are desperate to preserve, preserve their worldview. I actually had one of my old friends. <clears throat> we worked together in the anti-nuclear movement years ago. And she said, she just kind of flipped out on me after a meal together uh, and, and kind of said, I, if you're right about 9-11, my whole worldview would, cr would crumble. And I was surprised at that. I, you know, I mean, I get it, but I was surprised. I thought, wait a minute, you, you agreed with me 20 years ago that these people were prepared to put the whole of humanity at risk, building all these weapons of of doom and, and uh, omnicide, and yet somehow you can't imagine that they would have killed a few thousand people in New York City? What's wrong with this picture? I don't know. But anyway, I wanted to affirm what you say, and I don't like to psycho psychoanalyze people or anything, but um, you know, I find it actually quite unpredictable as to who, who is going to see through one of these narratives and who isn't. Doesn't seem to have too much to do with ideology. Doesn't seem to have to do much with level of education. Um, so I, I don't know what it is. I don't know if anyone has figured that out yet. I'm talking about, for example, the, the current lockdown on COVID-19. Like, who is it that questions? You know, is there, is there a key to figuring out who's, who that's going to be? If there is, I haven't found it. I, yeah, I think I, I would tend to agree with you that it's quite unpredictable. I mean, you have people who are uh, very openly and have been for a long time questioning um, what's been going on over the past year and a half, uh, but are very committed to the 9-11 official story. For example, you have people um, that completely reject the official story of 9-11, but are unwilling to question uh, the official narratives of the here and now. Um, so it yeah. is quite... Um, Unpredict it's certainly not a, a fair predictor, but I think this um there are some some parallels there in terms of um uh obedience to the official story and how skeptics are are treated by uh proponents of it and then um you know um how 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 of course this these narratives these official stories um are used to um uh, sort of minimize, dehumanize particular groups of people. Um, you know, in the case of after 9-11, it was to dehumanize a particular, um, ethno-religious group. Um, yes. and, yes. Uh, but now it's, uh, <laughs> and that it, it's interesting because the people that were susceptible to that demonization, um, 
you know, it's sort of flipped now. The people who were opposing um, the targeting of Muslims after 9-11, for example, a lot of them, uh, obviously major exceptions um, on this front, but uh, but a lot of them are uh, very willing to, uh, are, are promoting the removal of, of freedoms for the unvaccinated. Uh, and, you know, the justification for this is, oh, well, they, they have chosen uh, to not take <laughs> the vaccine. Um, so apparently it's okay to deprive a group of people of, of freedom if it's viewed as a voluntary choice. Um, but, you know, obviously, um, you know, if you're willing to deprive any group um, of their freedom because of what you are being uh, told by uh, the authorities, um, I personally take a lot of um, issue with that. But it is um, certainly interesting that it seems like um, they've determined that certain uh, major swaths, at least in the United States, um, on both sides of the pol- political divide can be made to uh, support the removal of freedoms for millions of people. Um, as long as, you know, it, it fits, it, it checks certain boxes. It's um, quite interesting. And these aren't things I really would have thought about or even really thought were possible a few years ago. But of course, um, a lot has changed. Yeah. Yeah, a lot has changed. So I'm not any good at predicting the future either. I uh, I didn't know that even after having read, written a book on the anthrax deception, I wasn't sitting around waiting for medical martial law to hit me and my home so that I can't go out and hang out with my friends and have, have a meal in a restaurant. No, I didn't predict it. And I also don't know the answer to what the relationship is between the, the elite's behind the um, two-part psychological operation of 2001, meaning 9-11 and the anthrax attacks. I believe they were part one and part two of the same psych uh, psyops. And um, the elites behind that, I'm not sure what the relationship is between them and the ones behind the the lockdown and all that goes with it. Doesn't seem, you know, there are overlaps in personnel. You've pointed out some of these, but on the other hand, the geopolitical aims seem quite different. Yeah. I mean, for example, you know, as you said, the 9-11 and anthrax thing was definitely uh, demonizing particular religious and cultural groups and targeting very specific countries, which were even listed in the morning and afternoon of the day itself on 9-11. We have to go after this country and this country and this country. And then they did. And I, I do believe Israeli intelligence was involved in some way in the operation. I don't mean they took the lead, uh, because it all happened that almost all the countries they went after were adversaries, right. mm-hmm. regional adversaries of Israel. But now we look at today at the COVID thing, and, 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 and I scratch my head because Israel is being used as Pfizer's big test tube, right? I mean, and and uh, the rate of vaccination with the Pfizer vaccine, um, you put you can put vaccine in quotes, is very high in Israel, and it's clear that it's not working, and people are going in the hospital with COVID even though they've been vaccinated. It's a disaster, and I can't see. It doesn't make sense to me if the same elites were in control of the two things, because the Israeli population is in this case being victimized. Right. Well, it's hard. It's hard to know exactly um, why it's it's turned out that way. But I think it's useful in this case to make a very clear dichotomy um, between, you know, a the national security state of a country and its people. Um, 
so in the case of, you know, 9-11, I definitely agree with you about um, uh, a role of Israeli intelligence in the events of 9-11. Um, and of course, but I, I, don't, I don't necessarily think that that involved, you know, the general population of Israel at all. I think it involved their of course not. Um, intelligence of course not. services, uh, definitely Benjamin Netanyahu to a significant uh, degree, uh, since he... Um, you know, came out sw- in Ehud Barak, uh, who both yes, came out exactly. swinging. Uh, I think, mm-hmm. I think. by the way, I hate to interrupt you, but I think Ehud Barak is one of the most suspect men on the planet for that operation. Yeah, well, his his ties with Epstein make him suspect in, in other senses as well. Um, definitely yeah. a person that deserves more... Um, more scrutiny, uh, but in the case of you know COVID as well, it's um you know Netanyahu also again very powerful uh, running Israel for most of what's happened over the past year and a half, only having relatively recently stepped down, um and you know it, it, maybe he's uh, willing to sacrifice. Uh, or willing to use his own populace for particular aims. We don't, unfortunately, with, with what's going on right now, we don't, we're, we're not sitting 20 years in the future reflecting on, um, uh, you know, current events, uh, because, you know, obviously a lot of information, uh, and things happen over that time that make the, the motivations of events in the past more clear and things like that. So we can see, um, you know, 20 years on the clear geopolitical benefit that 9-11 had for, the Israeli national security state, um, and, and certain players, right? But, um, as it is now, it's, it's hard to know. But what we're seeing again is, is sort of this shift currently, um, away from sort of this nationalist push into a, a more globalist, um, uh, paradigm, I guess you could say. Um, and so that may have something to do with it that certain elites, um, you know, within, uh, the particular country of Israel have been, um, you know, have some sort of knowledge about something or avoiding something that the general population is not, um, for whatever reason. Um, but there are a lot of things I guess I could speculate about, but I'd rather uh, not on this podcast because it would be a bit off topic. Um, but there is, um, an interesting thread here, um, that I'll just bring up because I did do some work on this, uh, before I got into the whole, um, Epstein mess during my time at uh, Mint Press. I was writing a series about um, sort of the intersections about religious extremism within the Trump administration in the sense of um, the apocalyptic vision for things of people like Mike Pompeo, uh, who was director of the CIA, and um, also of uh, former Vice President Mike Pence and how that intersected with their um, Zionist counterparts in Israel, um, how particular... um, uh, individuals like Pompeo Pence and also, um, prominent, uh, Zionist, uh, evangelical pastors, um, like John Hagee, um, are, are quite, um, open about the need for a large number of Israeli Jews to die for the end times, um, and things like that. You know, there may be some things in, in, in there to speculate about. Um, but I honestly, you know, I don't know. <laughs> um, so, you no, know. No, no, no. I, I, I think. I'm really glad you're doing this research uh, because it looks like I won't be. And um, all I was trying to say is we don't know, but it's not ob- it's not immediately obvious to me uh, how uh, Israel's position. I know I realize that elites don't give a damn most of the time what happens to their own citizens, but they have certain beliefs and they have certain notions about wh- what they want to have happen. And in the case of Israel, they want Palestinians 
to uh, go away or die, basically. So when I have people on the left saying, oh, those poor Palestinians, they aren't getting the, the vaccine as much as they should. You know, and the Israelis are keeping it for themselves. And I'm saying, whoa, hold on there. You know, if it were me, I, I would tell the Palestinians to stay away from the vaccine. And um, so I, I just... It's not as if I know what's happening. I'm agnostic. I do not know what's happening. Uh, I'm just saying, um, yeah, I think it's a, a different vision. It is more globalist. It is less nationalist, as you say. It's not about just securing this particular country. It's about um, controlling the world. I think what we're going through now is a huge experiment. And, and uh, as one of my friends says, they're taking notes. You know, they're seeing what works here and what doesn't work and how many people can they get vaccinated and, and you know, and how far can they push the digitizing of everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and and, uh, you know, and of course, if we want to screw up that experiment, then it's up to us to, to act. Right. As as yeah, I, I do want to to underscore something you just brought up in that we uh, there is a current issue with an independent media that, that I see right now of a lot of infighting about what the vaccine does and what it will do and all of this. And as you pointed out, we do not know. Uh, there right. are very obvious um, ulterior motives at work here. Um, the vaccination campaign is unprecedented in a number of ways, including the uh, duress people are being put under and the choices they're being forced to make about whether or not to get um, a, what's supposed to be, uh, you know, a preventative medical intervention. Um, it's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, oddities, um, at work here. What are the motivations of that exactly? Why are people being so pressured, particularly in, in, particular, specific countries to take the vaccine to such extreme degrees? Uh, we don't know. There's a lot of speculation and there's also people saying, well, if you don't agree with why I think, uh, you know, what I think the vaccine is doing, then you're controlled opposition or you're a liar, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. I mean, it's just very unfortunate and very um, divisive and not honestly uh, that different from uh, things that took place in the 9-11 truth movement, where if you don't agree with my theory about this particular thing. Um, yes. Everything yes. else you say should be discounted and all of that. Uh, there is a, a decided lack of um, agnosticism. And in, in my earlier uh, speculation about why Israel is being used as a test bed, of course, was, you know, based on an assumption that there may be something um, uh, uh, disadvantageous about um, the vaccine. Um being taken by such a large swath of a of a particular population um in the case of um as this has uh, taken place in israel uh, and of course that's based on you know some preliminary data that we do have um access to but also the fact um well um this will be more clear in my uh, forthcoming report about um moderna specifically um but well before COVID, there was a lot of controversy um, that was pretty openly acknowledged in the mainstream media about mRNA vaccines in multiple doses, um, that several companies abandoned treatments that would have required more than one or more than two doses um, because of toxicity concerns. And Israel is, of course... Um, They've already said that you know, if you're in Israel, that your vaccine passport will expire if you don't submit to a fourth dose and you better start preparing uh, for wow. dose four, which, of course, could, you know, easily turn into dose five. 
uh, dose 11. <laughs> I mean, it really depends on how far, um, they want to take that. So that is sort of uh, where that assumption on my part was coming, but I don't want to give away, um, too much about that, but really, as far as I know, uh, Israel's the only one that sort of openly signaled that fourth dose future. Um, even in the U.S., uh, the FDA essentially had a mutiny on its hands about whether or not to um, approve a third dose for the general population um, and uh, made a very limited recommendation, uh, apparently, to um, the disappointment of the Biden administration. So there definitely seems to be something uh, about the multiple uh, doses bit. But anyway, um, uh, I did sort of mention the 9-11 truth movement, and I did have some listener questions, if you're um, open to uh, answering a few of um, of them on your perspectives as someone who uh, very much uh, inhabited uh, that movement for many years. Um, so if that's okay, I'd uh, like to shoot a couple of those your way. Yes, Whitney. And I just wanted to reaffirm something. Uh, you're, you're right about the divisions in these movements. And I, my position in the 9-11 truth movement, so-called, I don't like the term very much, movement of 9-11 dissent, I would call it. Uh, I hated the divisions there. And there were certain issues that were used to split the movement apart. And I think we have to have a sophisticated knowledge of social movements how they flourish, how they die. And we have to pay just as much attention to that as we do to all the little details about the vaccine or whatever. So now we're going through the same thing with the COVID-19 thing. And we, if we want to build a movement of opposition, we have to know something about how you do that and to not, not start demonizing everybody who disagrees with us. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And that was one of the things I wanted to, one of the questions I actually got, um, about your views on the 9-11, uh, truth movement was about, um, those divisions, where they popped up, um, and how they were used. So I don't know if you want to expand on what you just brought up and be a little more specific, or I can ask you, um, something more specific as well, if you'd like. Well, um, there were certain issues that were used to drive the movement into two parts, very bitter parts. And I got to see that up front 10 years ago when a small group of us, I think it was five, um, decided to put on the Toronto hearings on 9-11. And so this is one of the biggest events, I think, historically that's ever been put on, on 9-11. We spent the whole week, essentially. We flew people in from all over the place, and they gave their expert views on what happened, and then we had a panel. Anyway, the point is, I thought that the uh, movement of dissent would support us and would say, good for you. You're putting yourself out there. You're raising the money. You're putting in the time. And instead, we got all kinds of hate mail. And, uh, and it was very divisive. I would say um, the two most divisive issues at that time were um, a particular researcher named Judy Wood, Professor Judy Wood, her supporters went after us in all kinds of nasty ways, you know, phoning our colleagues at work and trying to get us fired and all that kind of stuff. The other wedge issue here was the Pentagon. You know, what happened at the Pentagon? And people were, there were a lot of people very annoyed that we weren't going to take a position on, you know, did a plane hit the Pentagon or didn't it hit the Pentagon? And we were trying very hard to to present to the public a consensus on what we have learned over the first 10 years. 
And, and we didn't mind avoiding certain issues if they were highly contentious, because it wasn't the point of that event to, con to do all issues. So we tried to come up with a compromise on the Pentagon and were thoroughly, <laughs> thoroughly reviled by everybody <laughs> for it. So, so that, that's an issue. I'm actually quite impatient now when people want me to take a position on the Pentagon. I just say, you know, I stopped studying what happened at the Pentagon years ago. I believe it's divisive. I'm not going to go there. I'm going to concentrate on other things. Yeah, I can sort of relate to that, not necessarily in the context of 9-11, but things that have taken place uh, more recently, because this is definitely something that seems to happen uh, relatively frequently when when uh, particular movements, dissent movements, as you're calling it, seem to get too close to the target or seem to be yeah. uh, reaching a point of perhaps too much success um, and getting its uh, narrative out there and, and uh, sort of... Um, uh, wading away from the conspiracy theory, um, you know, smear and, and things like that. Um, there seems to be, uh, people who pop up that do not like, uh, careful reasoned, uh, arguments or a willingness to compromise. Um, and as someone who, you know, since I worked at Mint Press, uh, Mint Press is, you know, a progressive, uh, left leaning outlet. I definitely, um, uh, sort of uh, made it a point uh, to write my work without um, a particular progressive uh, bias and instead really tried to just keep it to facts so that people on, uh, regardless of where they are in the political aisle, could sort of look at it and uh, yes. make their own conclusions, yes. um, yeah. right? And um, there's some people Absolutely. who uh, really don't like that approach. Uh, for whatever reason, or they're, they'll accuse you of collaborating with the enemy or, <laughs> you know, all sorts of, um, no, all no. sorts of you, things you, pop up. Yeah, no, you, you'll get all kinds of hate mail, I'm sure. Um, oh, I, I do. That, <laughs> so yeah, does everyone yeah. <laughs> at this point, I think. <laughs> so. Yeah, exactly. Well, my, my view is that this is the moment in terms of lockdown skeptics, if you want to call it that, where we have to, build coalitions or what the left used to call popular fronts and we have to do it sincerely and that if you do it sincerely as opposed to just strategically it means you really do have to be willing to sit down with people uh, who are coming from a different very different ideological place mm -hmm. and and you have to be willing to listen and you have to be willing to stop caricaturing them and i think if we don't do this we're finished i think we have to build very Absolutely. broad coalitions my experience in the peace movement was that coalitions are really amazing. They're they're like a wild ride, you know, because you can sit for years in some little sectarian group where everybody agrees with you and never really get challenged. But suddenly in a coalition where there's different groups from different ideological perspectives, you really have to force yourself to be open and to be tolerant and to listen. And... Um, even though it can be frustrating as hell, I think it is a very good dose of reality for all of us. Great. Well, with that um, being said, let me get um, just a, a couple questions here um, from people I mentioned earlier. Um, someone asked, is believing in controlled demolition an integral part of 9-11 truth, in your opinion? Well, I don't think you would need to necessarily believe that the World Trade Center buildings were subjected to controlled demolition in order to be a dissenter. There are many, many topics on which you can dissent. 
again, uh, if you want to look on the internet, you'll still find the website of the 9-11 consensus panel. And of course, the main results of that panel were published as a book. Of course, I can't remember the title of it right at the moment, which is very typical for me. But anyway, um, yeah. There are, <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. worry about it. <laughs> that happens to all of us so, with uh, lots of uh, articles behind us. <laughs> yeah, well, it'll especially happen to you as you age, let me tell you. <laughs> but anyway, anyway, the point is this. Uh, by all means, go forth and study the particular thing you want to study. I'm just saying from my perspective, the controlled demolition thing is is a, a key one because there's there's really no it isn't a matter of he said she said on this one you know it either violates the law of gravity or it doesn't now if you want to stay away from it and say i'm not a building expert i don't know about that that's fine you you there's lots for you to study right i, I think we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier that there's um you know like you said a lot of different uh pieces to pick apart um and that to accept the official story you're essentially going against um the what the people that wrote it have to say, and you're endorsing, um, you know, uh, someone who was waterboarded, I don't know how many hundreds of times, uh, you right. know, as a, uh, his torture te testimony way he's being tortured as a, you know, a legitimate source of, of information. I mean, you can just really start there. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Start there by all means. And also start with, you know, the, the repression of dissent, which is another giveaway in what we're going through right now. You know, I mean, why is it that open dialogue is not allowed in these Absolutely. cases? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, not if, just about 9-11, but any event really, huh? Exactly. Mm -hmm. I mean, if we really believe in freedom of thought and expression, and we really believe that the truth can best be discovered as we explore it from many different angles, then why is that not being allowed? Right. So an, another question I got was, uh, what do you think have been uh, the greatest successes and also greatest failures of the 9-11 Truth Movement? Oh, dear. Um, you can just pick one of each if you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know that there are some very prominent members of the movement now saying that they're tired of all this emphasis on the destruction of the buildings. And I get it because it's it's only one issue among many. But it's the issue I gravitated to because it was the issue that convinced me in 2005 that this was a fraud. Um, and I contribute most of the stuff I've contributed has had to do with that. Uh, and therefore, from my point of view, no matter what others think, I think that I have to give credit to a particular organization, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth. And we've had many, many 9-11 organizations, 9-11 dissent organizations over the years. Most of them do their job and then they go. And that's okay. That's how social movements work. A group comes and then it goes. Um, you know, the 9-11 consensus panel came. We did our job and we went. The Journal of 9-11 Studies was a very hot thing for a while. Not so much now. And, uh, and so on. That's okay. But Somehow, um, the organization Richard Gage founded, despite its difficulties, it's going through terrible difficulties right now, I have to give them credit because they have stayed and they have grown and they have been able to hire staff and they had have become a pain in the neck uh, to the establishment, which is one of the reasons they're going through troubles right now. And um, And they do focus on the building destruction. And so that also limits what they can say, of course. Um, you know, Richard Gage got in trouble for talking about what's going on right now, the COVID thing. 
But nonetheless, I have to take take off my hat to them. I, I've been a member at large for many years, but um, but essentially, I'm not I'm not in the inner circle of that organization, and um, so I'm I'm honoring them. I'm saying I think they they have had several successes. Um, now, what do you mean by success? Have we changed the minds of the majority? Have we, you know, changed governments and so on? Not as far as I know. Um, on the other hand, when you look at the statistics in the world, the last time I made a look, a serious look at surveys, I discovered to my surprise that mo the majority of people in the world, and I'm talking about adults, of course, uh, do not, in fact, affirm the official story of 9-11. So it is, in fact, a minority view in the world as a whole, this idea that Arab hijackers did this and that. Many people in the world say they don't know what happened. Others say they don't They don't think it was Arab hijackers. Some say they specifically think that it was the U.S. themselves that did it. So let's keep that in mind. And what it means is that we really don't know what's going on under the surface here. We don't know if elections in this country or that country, including the United States, have been influenced by this issue. We know that there are substantial numbers of the population who think something very rotten happened on that day. Um, did, the, 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 did that influence their vote? Did that influence how they act here and there? I don't think we know. So um, there's a sense in which I can't say what, what we've been successful in doing or not doing. I can merely look at organizations that have stuck to a valid position, even if it's very narrowly focused, and made some strides. And, uh, you know, when people say to me, oh, you know, you've spent so much of your life on this, you know, it's going nowhere, you're, you're not going to succeed. <laughs> I just say, look, um, what do you want me to do? Go to sleep or die, you know? Because as far as I'm concerned, while I'm still alive, I'm going to oppose a false op operation that caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands or millions of people in the world. I'm going to oppose it. If I fail, I fail. You know, that's, you know, you do what you can. Okay. Last, uh, last question here. Um, to you, what are the most productive avenues of investigation and exposure? Uh, and where should we be focusing our time to convince the public that there's more to 9-11? You know, I should have a good answer for that, but I'm not sure I do. I remember being asked that uh, in an interview by James Corbett a long time ago, years ago. And uh, I'm sure I said something that made sense at the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, but no, I, I mean, it's I, fine. I, I don't know. I mean, there's, as I say, there are many, many issues here. If you look at the 9-11 consensus panel, I really suggest you do that because it gives us an idea of all the different issues and different directions we can go. Which one will crack this open for us? I don't know. But I'm saying I think architects and engineers are good that they've taken a diamond drill to this one issue. And they've said, we're not going to be distracted. We're going to keep going after this one and persuading more and more professionals that this is true. And um, I don't know if that's the way any given individual should spend their time. Maybe they have nothing to contribute to that particular part. Maybe if they look at the wider thing, they'll say, whoa, here's one over here I can contribute to. So, you know, look at the issues uh, the, in the broad sense and then decide, I would say, where you fit in. That's all I can say right now. 
Well, I think it's um it, it's a harder question to answer than ever because so much of um what this the the successes of getting the word out, I guess, of this type of work before, um, you know, it wasn't taking place in such uh, an environment where online censorship was just uh, totally insane, <laughs> for lack of a better term. Um, yes. And yes. I think it's uh, becoming increasingly uh, difficult uh, to get your message out, um, particularly for people who may, you know, want to start up and start their own uh, channels or publications and things like that. I mean, they've they've made it quite hard uh, <laughs> uh, for for people that don't, uh, you know, toe the official line uh, in in any sense. You know, even if it's uh, not about you're not questioning 9-11 or, or COVID or, or things like that. You know, if you question anything else that's inconvenient, the censorship will come for you too. Um, you know, yep. it's, it's yep. quite extreme. So it's, um, it's, it's hard to know, but I would say, um, the one thing I guess I would, I would, uh, say to that though is that, you know, you can always do what you can within the circle of people, uh, you know, or locally. Um, <laughs> and maybe, you know, uh, you may not reach, um, thousands and thousands of, of people, but you can still, uh, make a difference. Uh, and, you know, like you were saying, there's no, uh, reason to just, you know, go to sleep or, or die and do nothing. It's all incumbent on us to try and, um, raise concerns about whether it's 9-11 or what's happening right now or something in between, you know, uh, any major injustice, uh, that concerns you deserves to be, uh, talked about and, uh, we should, uh, make efforts to do that however uh we can really uh because you know we have to denounce uh evil when it becomes known to us at least that's my view um, i agree i agree completely you know the only thing i would add there and i was just thinking about this as you were talking is there's a tendency among a lot of young people now to spend a lot of time on the smartphone and twitter and stuff all of which is fine i mean i don't use those but that's fine but i think please don't lose the tradition of reading books, you know, because there are some good works on this. And yes, it takes patience and it takes time and you have to fit it in your life. Um, but, you know, that's the only way to find out what's really going on here. You know, like I, I was, um, a couple of my friends still thought that Lee Harvey Oswald had killed John F. Kennedy. And I, I lent them Jim, Jim Douglas's book, JFK and the Unspeakable. And they were unspeakably uh, influenced by that. They just said, my God, I had no idea that this could have happened. I had no idea there was a coup in the United States that changed the country's direction. And, you know, you can't you can't put it in a Twitter. You have to read the book, right? Right. And so I, I want to encourage people to do that. Yeah, well, you know, the whole smartphone thing, it's it's definitely, there's an obvious attempt, uh, and I, I talk about it and have written about it a lot, um, as of other people, uh, to sort of corral us into uh, the screen, <laughs> um, yeah. digital only lives. Um, and all, and all of that. And, you know, it's, it's, it's important to resist that, um, however we can. And I think, you know, the more, uh, real world, uh, local time you have, or even book reading is an easy way to do it. Um, you know, I think the more people can do, um, in that sense, the better off we all, <laughs> we all will be, um, you know, and, uh, uh but, yeah. you know, make success. Um, you know, some people I'm close to, I can't, convinced to stop unlocking their phones with their faces <laughs> i wish they would stop you know but um yeah. you know you can yeah. only 
do what you can. And sometimes you're only responsible for you. Right. So, um, you know, just do what you can. If you can't convince other people to join you, (laughs) I guess I would. No, no, I think you're right. And I'm not sure I can improve upon that. I remember years ago, I attended a talk by a, a great U.S. activist, Dave Dellinger. And Dellinger kind of made me feel so comforted because here's this guy who has done so much nonviolent action in the United States. Um, really, I admired him. And yet he was forgiving us all in a sense. He was saying, look, there are seasons in our lives, okay? Just accept it. There are times when we are out there on the street. There are times when we're being threatened for for the cutting-edge work we're doing. But there are other times when we have to retreat and we have to become safe and we have to become healed from what's going on. I mean, in his case, his whole family was almost blown up on Christmas morning by a grenade hidden in a bottle of scotch. But I mean, we're not all in that extreme situation. But here he was saying, you know, take it easy on yourself. You, you don't burn out with the rage and grief. And I think that's a message we need right now. Yeah, I think that's actually really positive and nice to hear. Thank you. <laughs> um, because, you know, especially, well, for me, especially, I'm not very good at the whole take time for me um, <laughs> uh, thing. You know, I'm uh, the mom of a toddler about to be mom of two kids and uh, have a have a lot of uh, work piling up around me all the time. At least it feels that way. But it's definitely uh, good advice <laughs> that, I should, <laughs> that I know I should listen to more, probably other people listening as well. Um, so uh, we've been going for uh, a good bit of time, and hopefully you have a little bit more time uh, that I of yours that I can borrow to discuss your sure. work on the anthrax attacks. Um, sure. You already alluded to... Um, your view, a view that I share of uh, the events of 2001, 9-11 and anthrax being part um, of the same operation. But in an article for, uh, I believe it was first published at Covert Action Magazine, um, you make the argument that, uh, quote, there was an overlap in personnel in the 9-11 and anthrax operations. And because of this overlap, it is clear that the two operations were planned by a single group. So um, if you don't mind me asking you, uh, what evidence led you to reach that conclusion? Yeah, I was uh, actually quite surprised to find that out when I began studying the anthrax attacks. So just a little, I'll try and keep this short, a little background. I had been studying 9-11 and had written a fair bit about it. And I finally thought, you know, it's time I looked at these anthrax attacks a little bit more because people are telling me that they were a fraud and that they've been traced to a U.S. military lab. And I thought, this is kind of important (laughs) if it's true. Um, you know, so what's the relationship of that to 9-11? So somewhere around 2010, I began looking a little bit, very timidly at first, uh, at the anthrax attacks. Um, I was not a pioneer in the research on the anthrax attacks, but I decided to get involved. And I realized that I could contribute something. And that is on precisely this topic, the relationship of 9-11 to the anthrax attacks. Because there had been books, including quite large books before mine, and and they did, you know, comprehensive examination of the attacks. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to compete with those books. But the one thing that almost all of those authors had in common was that they accepted the official story of 9-11. And I began to realize you'll never solve the anthrax attacks uh, if you accept the official story of 9-11. Because the more deeply I looked into the anthrax attacks, the more I saw these connections 
including the overlap of personnel that you're talking about. So, for example, um, I realized as I studied this that there was a, st a strip al in, uh, along the coast of Florida uh, where the so-called 19 hijackers, before they hi hijacked them, by the way, I don't think they hijacked anything. That's why I call them so-called, uh, where they were living and, you know, and going to the gym and visiting airports and all kinds of silly stuff. Um, they were they were monitored pretty carefully and we know where they were. And Florida was one of the big locations. And I thought, well, if you look at that strip on the map, you find the first person to have that we know who contracted pulmonary anthrax and who died of it, uh, Robert Stevens, is right in the middle of that strip in Florida. Now, at that point, it could be, of course, complete coincidence. But if you're an investigator, you don't just say, oh, that's coincidence. You look into it and you see, well, you know, maybe there's more than coincidence. So you find that that's in fact true. The more you look, <laughs> the more the plot thickens. And you eventually find in that case that there was a real estate agent, Gloria Irish, who was the real estate agent for Robert Stevens, the first anthrax victim. And she was also the real estate agent for several of the 19 hijackers. And now, now that's starting to look very peculiar. Well, the, the probability it, of that being a coincidence drops considerably doesn't it? Yeah. 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 It, it's, you know, there's a, yeah. Anyway, without getting it, I, I think the probability is about zero of that being coincidence. So you kind of then have to go, okay, so why don't we know more about this? Why is this not better known? And as I looked into it, I realized that it was pretty well known when it first came out. Uh, and then the FBI kind of swept it down the memory hole. Now, why was it well known? It was well known because the perpetrators of these acts, both 9-11 and anthrax, intended that it should become clear gradually to people that they were different parts of the same operation. But they wanted us to believe that Iraq was behind the whole thing and Al-Qaeda were the foot soldiers that were doing Iraq's right. bidding. And that would justify attacking both of both Afghanistan and Iraq. And this, these, I don't have to speculate that these were the theories you know, it was very clear in October, especially of 2001, these theories were being pushed. Uh, I call it the double perpetrator hypothesis. Al-Qaeda are the foot soldiers supported by Iraq. That's the story they wanted to push. And in the course of that, they were, they were saying, yes, yes, there's these overlaps in Florida, uh, among other overlaps, not the only one. Um, because they wanted us to believe that the 9-11 hijackers were involved in both the anthrax attacks and the 9-11 attacks. But as soon as the anthrax narrative fell apart, which it did very rapidly, you know, by December 2001, it was being admitted by the FBI and Homeland Security that, oh, well, it looks like the anthrax didn't come from Iraq and it didn't come from Afghanistan. It came from the United States, okay? So as that story fell apart, it was important that they sever all relationships between 9-11 and anthrax and that they erase all these stories of overlaps. But the fact is there are overlaps. Mohammed Atta especially, who's supposedly the leader of the 9-11 attacks and piloted the, the uh, plane into the North Tower, he keeps showing up in connection with a planned anthrax attacks on the United States. And so this was part of the plan. And, and they had to abandon that part of the plan and they had to 
find a lone nut that they could blame the anthrax attacks on, which became Bruce Ivins, and you know, and pretend it had nothing to do with 9/11. But it did, folks, and that's really one of the main points of my book, the uh, the 2001 anthrax deception, which I then tried to sum up in a way in that article for covert action. Well, I think one of the most telling things about this narrative, because like you said, once it was quickly traced back, the anthrax was quickly traced back to some sort of U.S. military source, which became Fort Detrick in the narrative, but in practice, as we can talk about later, um, was likely from somewhere else, not necessarily from Fort Detrick um, itself. Um, but the particular narrative that it was Iraq um, working with Al-Qaeda, this, of course, precedes uh, September. October and September 2001 by several months. Um, it was, uh, very openly flushed out at the, um, war games, <laughs> I guess you could call it, um, Dark Winter. Um, yeah. right. Uh, which was a bioterror, uh, simulation about smallpox, uh, but did have, uh, several interesting, uh, mentions of anthrax, uh, towards the end of their, um, war game simulation, tabletop planning exercise, whatever you want to call it. Um, right. <laughs> they use different names for it. Um, but, you know, uh, they certainly were predictive about some things and uh, some people uh, at that exercise appeared to have uh, odd forward knowledge um, that soon after 9-11, there would be an anthrax event. Um, one of these people is someone who we mentioned a little bit earlier on, uh, Jerome Hauer, for example. Um, <laughs> I'm uh, sure you're familiar uh, with with that, but also um, the case of uh, Judith Miller. Um, exactly, exactly, <laughs> Whitney. Those are two of the leading criminals here. <laughs> yeah. Well, would you like to expand on that? I can also, if you prefer. <laughs> but because um, well, we've well, both written I, on this, but you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't mind if you expand on it. I, I have a fairly short section in my book on Dark Winter, but I do point out. Ten similarities there between the dark winter exercise in June of 2001 and the actual anthrax attacks um, later on in September, uh, between September and November 2001. So there were, yes, they definitely prefigured the attacks. I would say for me, the most interesting parts, uh, in addition to these fishy individuals <laughs> that you mentioned, are uh, the fact that in the June exercise, it turns out to be a double perpetrator uh, scenario uh, with Iraq being behind the smallpox attacks and Iraq having used um, a group based in Afghanistan as its proxy. Um, and I thought, how interesting, because that's the exact same story they pushed in October 2001 until it was discovered that it was completely 100% false. So that really interested me. Um, I'm also interested, of course, in the uh, fascination they have with the restrictions on civil liberties that would have to be uh, imposed. And it include what they called included martial rule, which would be imposed, I'm going to quote now, if a crisis threatens to undermine the stability of the United States government. And here I'm quoting from the dark winter exercise. Options for martial rule include but are not limited to prohibition of free assembly, national travel ban, quarantine of certain areas, etc., etc., and of military trials. 
in the event that the court system becomes dysfunctional. How interesting, I thought. How interesting is that? So um, please feel free to go on and, and, and say more about, for example, the fishy individuals. But I sure. just wanted to... Well, on yeah. that on that last point you brought up, though, one other thing in addition to you know the, these bans on interstate travel, some of this um, stuff they talk about there. There's also you know the uh, the fake news clips that they made for the exercise, yeah. and yeah, they're, um, they're, they're really convincing. <laughs> yes, well, there's one that's I. Um, uh, I didn't. I, I I personally don't think I gave it enough attention, but I find it very telling of the mindset of the people who designed and were involved in this exercise. Um, basically, the the smallpox uh, event. Um, yeah takes place in uh, Oklahoma, if I remember correctly. And there's a reporter, there's like the news anchor of the fake news clips. And there's also like a, a field reporter in one of these clips. And right. there's gunshots heard. And he's talking about people trying to flee from Oklahoma, I believe, into Texas, basically crossing a state border um, and that they're being shot by the National Guard um, for mm -hmm. trying to engage in interstate travel, um, which is... um interesting to say the very least um you know yeah. this type of uh martial law uh scenario yeah. that they were exploring there and of course the suspension of civil liberties under the guise of uh public health is something that people should probably be familiar with now <laughs> um absolutely, and there's absolutely. discussions no of idea. interstate uh travel bans or uh, different types of travel bans for people with the with inappropriate documentation and all of this but a lot of these ideas um that we're seeing implemented now of course were first explored back then and that's why uh, it's not that surprising that you have individuals uh recurring individuals i guess you could say um from dark winter involved in some of these odd simulations that preceded covid-19 um and also uh, individuals who um i i think um their uh, potential role in what happened with anthrax should be explored uh more deeply specifically specifically robert cadlick who after 911 was put into a prominent position on advising Paul, uh, uh, Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld um, about bio bioterrorism and then subsequently was head of the entire uh, COVID-19 response under the Trump administration um, as head of Assistant Secretary uh, Preparedness and Response Office um, at HHS. And in things like that, there are a lot of um, uh, oddities there. And of course, Cadlick is the person who, uh, from his appearance in the news clip, is uh, the, <laughs> from where Dark Winter derives its name. Um, and he also engaged in his own very oddly predictive um, simulation of a pandemic uh, coronavirus infection originating in China uh, over the course of 2019 called Crimson Contagion. Like he's a long career of obsessing over this type of stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um, that those are, you know, a couple shady individuals, but in relation to Dark Winter itself and more the topic at hand, um, I definitely think Jerome Howard's worth uh, looking into um, in the sense of not just his role, for example, in this, um, this his obsession with building collapses and his uh, major role in the um, uh, 
uh, installation of that particular particular Office of Emergency Management in Building 7. Um, also, his role with, uh, I'm blanking on his name, the FBI agent that was in, in the expert, agency expert on Osama bin Laden, uh, being hired <laughs> by Jerome Hauer um, and suspiciously being one of uh, the only people at Kroll Associates where Howard was working at the time to not be told to not go to work on the morning of 9-11, even though they were providing security. Uh, O'Neill is the last name of this individual. He was unfortunately killed. I can't remember his his first name. Sorry, but Jerome Howard was uh, apparently one of the the people to discover uh, the body and had hired him like a day or two before. Something like that. But um, he was also an advisor to HHS's uh, Tommy Thompson, I believe his name was, the the HHS secretary under Bush, yes. who obviously led... Tommy Thompson. Mm-hmm, who led the anthrax response. And uh, it was Jerome Hauer who offered some sort of tip uh, to White House personnel, including Dick Cheney, who had been personally briefed about Dark Winter, um, to uh, start taking ciprofloaxin, uh, which is to prevent... Uh, the effects of anthrax infection in the body. We don't know how long uh, people in Cheney's office or the White House office more broadly uh, were taking Cipro. Uh, but I think I left this out of the story. Sorry, Jerome Howard was one of the main participants in Dark uh, Winter. I believe he played the role of FEMA director, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Um, <laughs> so he um, also made several appearances, as, as did some PNAC uh, project for a new American century types, um, in the weeks between 9-11 and in the first, uh, Republic reports of the anthrax attacks, uh, talking about anthrax, um, and Al Qaeda specifically. I don't know if there's anything you'd like to add there. I'd, I'd love to, um, get your take on Judith Miller because when I was writing, um, my stuff on anthrax, uh, last year it was, uh, from, from your work, uh, that I learned that the New York Times in the same period where you had Jerome Hauer and, and these PNAC, um, affiliated individuals talking about anthrax on, on cable TV, um, there were also, uh, numerous and, and a quite insane number of articles published in the New York Times, Judith Miller being the author of, uh, more than one of them, I believe, discussing anthrax in, in that type of context as well. Yes. Yeah, um, well, I haven't made an in-depth study of Judith Miller, but to me, she is a dark character in in all of this. And some people don't get it. They say to me, oh, she wrote a couple of exposés, and I go, no, I don't think so. Um, Basically, Judith Miller wrote a book, I believe it was called Germs, I've got it here somewhere, which talks about the danger of bioweapons. And it just happened to come out... um, pretty much right in the middle of the anthrax attacks, or maybe it was at the beginning of the anthrax attacks, and it became a bestseller and blah, blah, blah. And then she herself received a threatening letter with with um, powder in it just at the proper moment to help promote the book and and so on and so forth. But this is a person who, in her book, does classic kind of a combination of war on terror and Cold War stuff. You know, the real danger of bioweapons is Russia, and the problem is that Russia is somehow giving their weapons and their personnel to Iraq, so Iraq now becomes the new danger, and setting us all up for this uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq scenario, which, of course, was completely false. Finally, the New York Times had to get rid of her because she she just kept promoting this nonsense. I think she 
you know, I mean, I don't have hard evidence, but I think she was an out and out agent. Um, you know, an intelligence yeah, agent. Yeah, I tend to and agree so with she, you. So, so there she is in Dark Winter. Yeah, she's a you participant know. in Dark Winter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There were a couple reporters there, um, but she's one to definitely take note of. Uh, and she was also quite close with Scooter Libby, uh, or Lewis, I, Lewis Libby, I guess. Um, right. Better known as Scooter Libby, I guess, who was Dick Cheney's chief of staff, who uh, was known as Germ Boy uh, <laughs> within the White House <laughs> because of his obsession with Dark Winter and bioterrorism and all of this. And it was through him that Dick Cheney was personally briefed by Dark Winter's uh, authors, uh, principal authors, three of the four of them. Um Randy Larson, Tara O'Toole, who now works for the CIA, and Thomas Inglesby, who was the moderator of Event 201 in 2019. Um, And Judith Miller is quite um, interesting because uh, she was involved in reporting also, um, in a very limited hangout way, of course, um, the involvement of uh, the Pentagon and also the CIA in engaging right. in gain-of-function research on anthrax in the lead-up to yes. the 2001 anthrax attacks. Yes, uh, interesting, yes. she was chosen uh, to be the reporter following those particular leads uh, yeah. and is fear-mongering about uh, Russia, uh, but not the uh, U.S. and their gain-of-function work on uh, anthrax. And, of course, uh, uh, the Bush administration rejected... Uh, visits by international bodies of uh, the facilities uh, of which one of them was responsible for producing the anthrax used in the attacks. Um, You know, and uh, Judith, Judith Miller's work helped manufacture consent for, uh, for that and for a lot more as well uh, by being like, Oh, well, you know, the justification was, Oh, we can't let Russia know. And we have to keep these secret, uh, uh, Pentagon and CIA studies were doing on anthrax very, very secret um, because allegedly the Pentagon one was specifically was a response to some scientific paper uh, published in Russia about a particular strain of anthrax they had that rendered the existing anthrax vaccine uh, produced by the company now known as Emergent Biosolutions rendering that uh, ineffective. Uh, <laughs> so that was the whole justification. Okay. And what you mentioned earlier, um, you know, Judith Miller really did uh, work to set up this baton passing from, oh, evil bioterror threat Soviet Union, evil bioterror threat Iraq, uh, to sort of yeah. keep those narratives tightly knit together and and very uh, cozy <laughs> um, and cohesive. You know, that was essentially uh, her job here. Um, and she was an insider, obviously. Um, and uh, I think another one of the reporters, I forget which one, what outlet he worked for, um, at Dark Winter happened to be one of, if not the first uh, reporter on the ground at the Pentagon on 9-11. Another mm. uh, interesting coincidence. Yes. No, I'm really, thank you for that. I'm I'm really glad that you're looking closely at the overlap in this personnel and some of that i was i was unaware of until i read some of your work so thank you for that i would also say for those who really want to get into the anthrax thing in detail um they should look at the uh, petition to congress uh of last year by the lawyers committee for 9-11 inquiry uh, you can find the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry on the Internet, and you can find their petition to Congress. And it's quite long, and it has many attachments. And it uh, it narrows in on the anthrax spores, 
arguing that Bruce Ivins did not do it. He could not. Bruce Ivins, for those of you who are listening and don't know who he is, he was uh, an expert in anthrax vaccines, and he worked in Fort Detrick, Maryland, and he's the one that became the chosen perpetrator, the designated perpetrator for the anthrax attacks. But I think the evidence has always been ludicrously weak. The Lawyers Committee goes after this. It looks at the question of spores. It says he didn't do it. He couldn't have done it. Fort Diedrich couldn't have done it. The spores definitely came from Dugway or Battelle. And I think they tend to emphasize Dugway. But frankly, I don't think there's much difference. I think Battelle and Dugway, you know, are, they work closely together. And mm-hmm. ultimately, it doesn't really ultimately matter which one of them took the lead. Fair, fair enough. I tend to lean towards Battelle, but I think that's because of my focus on a few individuals there. One being Ken Alabeck, who is the head of Battelle's like bioweapons, biodefense right. uh, right. program at the time. Who was a CIA asset who previously led uh, some of the um, uh, uh, like the Fort Detrick program equivalents in the Soviet Union before defecting to the U.S. And he got caught years later, essentially making up a bunch of fear mongering crap. Um, to yeah. justify Cold War stuff, and he uh, was used, treated as a credible voice in claiming that Saddam Hussein had chemical uh, right. weapons and weapons of mass destruction uh, when he did not, and he's, you know, essentially running the CIA anthrax gain-of-function attacks in conjunction with a fellow named William Patrick III, who was also a mentor to a fellow named Stephen Hatfill, who was the FBI's right. first main uh, suspect, and a shady guy, but not the main perpetrator, but Patrick? I don't know. I, uh... I find him incredibly shady, if not maybe the shadiest. Um, he was actually apparently suspected of having conducted the anthrax attacks initially before being appointed to the FBI's technical advisory committee of its investigation. Um, yeah. Quite oddly, yeah. um, Patrick had... Uh, under Stephen Hatfield's direction at SAIC, where Jerome Howard was a vice president, um, conducted a study about exactly how much anthrax would be needed in business envelopes uh, to infect right. a particular office. Um, That's right. And all of and this they stuff. they up with the same amount that ultimately was used. Yes. Yes. Odd, isn't it? And, and also yeah. odd, since we were talking about Judith Miller, Judith Miller um, opens up her uh, letter with anthrax. Uh, per, this is her recounting of events. The white powder spills into her lap. She's panicked. The first person she called is William C. Patrick III. And he tells her, (laughs) oh, I promise it's not deadly. He somehow knows without seeing it that she'll be fine. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That's good. No, I didn't know that detail. Yeah. Oh, well. um, It's just funny, these guys. Uh, (laughs) So I don't really disagree with anything you're saying, uh, Whitney, and I think it's really important to look at individuals like a little bit like Kevin Ryan did with the book um, Another 19, where he tried to figure out who the main suspects were in the 9-11 crime. Uh, I'm not I'm it's not my strength in my book. I tried to make the point that we mustn't get caught up on who was the perpetrator of the. Right. I I agree with that to an extent because it was a. Well, I think it was a group, and I think it was a highly placed group. It must have been. Mm -hmm. They were able to place stories, you know, in The Guardian, The New York Times, The Washington Post. Um, They were able to do all kinds of stuff. Um, You know, and ABC News was a major collaborator and so on. And, you know, obviously uh, none of the guys either singly or in combination that we've mentioned here could have done this. 
So I think it was a big operation. Yeah. Don't forget, Dick Cheney was in hiding for most of the anthrax attacks. Right. He had gone on Cipro. He had gone, mm-hmm. Yeah. He had, he, yes, he'd taken Cipro and he had gone to a secure location not long after 9/11, and you know, and every now and then he would make an an appearance in order to uh, say some horrific things. But you know, so. I think this was this was a very high level operation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think a lot of the the people that spoke out at the time before Bruce Ev- Ivan's uh, untimely death, before the FBI accused him a uh, case against him, could have any sort of scrutiny applied uh, right. to it. You know, we're saying there's no way this could have been a lone wolf event. Someone would have needed. Um, you know, there one of I don't a handful of experts in the entire country could have pulled this off, and they would have needed a lab of personnel, and they would have needed at least right. a year, um, yeah, something yeah, exactly. like that. Um, you know, you have the fact that there's Pentagon and CIA anthrax gain of function uh, stuff going on. Uh, in order to really definitively answer the question, was it Dugway or Battelle? We of course would have to know the extent um, that these experiments. Um, of the Pentagon and CIA were going on uh, at at both of these places. Were they involved in both? Battelle appears to have been involved in both. Uh, but how closely were Dugway and Battelle collaborating during this time? There's a lot of unanswered questions because there's a lot of secrecy, but it's very obvious the official story here is not what happened. And yeah. um, the people yeah. who seem to have been in a very likely position, uh, like William C. Patrick, to have known what actually was going on, uh, were added to the investigative committee um uh, or or the investigation advisory board or whatever um to yeah. essentially derail the investigation which went nowhere very quickly after uh, tracing it back to the you know a, a US domestic store source obviously uh, the investigation was led and misled time and again Robert Cadlick who I mentioned earlier was also involved and is very proud to mention his involvement in the uh, anthrax non investigation um yeah you know, so these people were uh, quite quickly placed in prominent positions and advising, quote unquote, um, the Amerithrax investigation uh, to make sure it didn't really uncover what happened. Um, and, it's, it's, you know, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's all limited hangout stuff. Absolutely. And it's really unfortunate, you know, that um there isn't enough people that have have bothered to really look into this event, obviously you being a, a huge exception um, there. But even, you know, in the 9-11 truth community, community, people forget about anthrax. And I think anthrax, particularly given today's reality, um, could not be more relevant um, because, as you mentioned earlier, it was meant to be something much bigger uh, than it was because the narrative about it uh, got derailed. Um, its intended effect um, did not take place. It was meant to potentially go on even longer um, and, and um, you know, uh, keep people in a perpetual state of fear for who knows how long. Uh, the fact that it was traced back to a domestic source uh, stopped it in its tracks, but it's hard to know exactly how far it would have gone if not for that. I agree. And we know that there was at least one simulation of uh, an attack with with a crop duster plane and anthrax. And uh, I think we were very lucky that we just ended up with anthrax in letters. I think they were seriously considering. I think so, too. Yeah. And that could have been horrific. And I, I suspect they dropped it partly because... It was too unpredictable. I mean, these are all simulations, mm-hmm. right? They're all experiments. 
but with crashing planes into the building, you have a pretty good idea of how many people are going to be killed and you know how, how much that's going to be limited. But if you start spreading anthrax with a crop duster plane, you don't know who you're going to kill. You could kill yourself. You could, you could you know, really have a huge death toll. And my own feeling, and although I don't really, I don't have any support for this, but I've all, when I try to actually picture people pulling off these horrific operations, I tend to think that some parties agreed to collaborate on, on certain conditions and that they might have said, you know, okay, the tree of liberty needs to be, you know, whatever the saying is, nourished with the blood of patriots. So, yeah, okay, um, we'll, we'll go for a few deaths, but you have to limit them to, you know, like 5,000 is okay, 50,000 is too many. Uh, and, you know, if it's going to be 50,000, we can't go ahead with this. This is my own fantasy. I admit it. I don't have any evidence. Well, at least all I have is suggestive evidence from the day of 9-11. But I think this is the case. And I suspect there were some parties that weren't going to weren't willing to go with crop duster planes spreading anthrax. That could have been horrific toll. Yeah. One of the people promoting that narrative in cable news media was one of the top people at Project for a New American Century, Donald Kagan, uh, if right. I'm not mistaken, uh, right. who I think right after 9-11 also said they could have had anthrax on the planes. And also the day of 9-11 uh, said that it was uh, that Palestine was involved in the attacks. Uh, <laughs> that that's right. And, uh, you know, anthrax was mentioned on 9-11, even in newspaper articles. I think it was New York Times that had an article, fears of anthrax hang over the city, something like that. So they, they started preparing people, you know, very soon for this. And pretty soon there was, a, there was such a rush to, for people to buy Cipro. And this is before anyone had been diagnosed with anthrax. You know, they couldn't get enough Cipro in the drug source for people to take. This is Ciprofloxacin, which was used as an antibiotic against anthrax. People are taking it, and New York Times reports that women are putting it in their little Prada bags. <laughs> and all of this. <laughs> oh, that's normal. I know. This is all happening before anybody has been diagnosed with anthrax. They're talking about the fear of anthrax, and oh, the anthrax is coming, and pretty soon it becomes. The FBI starts saying, and so does the top people in the uh, Bush administration, including Tommy Thompson. They're all singing the same tune, which is, you know, you better, you know, prepare yourself for a possible bioweapons attack. And this becomes used, especially by Ashcroft, as a way to try and get the Democrats to pass the Patriot Act. Yes, I, mean, you- I'm hope- I was hoping you would uh, segue into this, or I was going to ask you directly. So um, uh, if you wouldn't mind taking this to the receipt of anthrax letters by members of Congress and its connection to the Patriot Act, that would be amazing. Well, I'll, I'll, ter- I'll talk about it in, in general terms, but the power of the argument comes with the detailed timeline. And and I do some of that in, in my book. So a lot of people know that there were two Democratic senators who got anthrax letters. But what we have to what we discover when we look at this carefully is that these two guys were responsible at a certain particular moment in halting uh, the Patriot Act, which was, you know, the Republicans wanted to pass through uh, Senate. Um, it had to be passed by both houses to become law. And the D- Democrats had a slight majority in Senate. So who were the two most important guys who stood up one day and said, you know, we're not going to pass this? 
as is. You have to make changes. Well, they were Tom Daschle, Senate Majority Leader, and Patrick Leahy, who was the head of the, I don't remember what it's called anymore, uh, something like the legis Senate Le Legislative Committee or something. But it was a crucial committee for vetting this Patriot Act before it could be passed. So these two guys come out, and it's not, this isn't just my opinion. This is carefully reading the Washington Post. The Washington Post says, okay, it looks like Dick Cheney's deadline, which was, I think, October 3rd, I don't remember. Uh, maybe it was 5th. October, you know, Dick Cheney's deadline for passing the Patriot Act is going to be missed, since it's not going to be made, because of two Democratic senators, and they mention them, they name them. And within a couple of days of this blocking of the Patriot Act, what do we get? <laughs> we get anthrax letters put in the mail to these two specific senators. I mean, come on, guys. I mean, this isn't rocket science. And, you know, so this is supposedly Al-Qaeda and Iraq who don't want the Patriot Act passed. I mean, it's, it's absurd. So, again, it's the detailed timeline you have to look at when you see this. But these guys could have been killed. Admittedly, it's more it's more likely that their secretaries and assistants would be killed, the people who actually open the letters. But the letter to um, to uh, Tom Daschle, uh, you know, when and a secretary or I think it was a young uh, senatorial assistant opened the letter and this stuff floated out of it. Nobody had seen anthrax spores this sophisticated before. It contaminated the whole building. The Hart Senate building had to be closed. Um, you know, and this is what? Al-Qaeda producing this stuff? Absurd. This is Iraq? No, no, no. Iraq's anthrax was not that sophisticated, and it wasn't weaponized that way. So whoever did this action screwed up, okay? They wanted to go after these two senators, but the anthrax they used was absolutely the wrong anthrax for the job. Yeah, again, like you said about 9-11, just uh, lots of errors. Uh, and it was, so, in the case of anthrax, I guess you could argue that the errors were just so blatant that it uh, unraveled uh, very quickly, uh, despite yes. all the fear um, generated around uh, the particular event and it, the fact of the timing, of course, it's piggybacking off of... Um, 9-11. Uh, also, people forget about this, and uh, you'll be uh, other people listening, and you, if you're interested. Uh, I do have this piece I mentioned earlier on Moderna coming out about how um, essentially what happened uh, is that a lot of concerns about safety and other things about their mRNA vaccine platform completely evaporated uh, with the onset of COVID-19. Uh, mm. So too was um, what happened with the 2001 anthrax attacks and the anthrax vaccine um, and efforts were made uh, unsuccessfully. Uh, to, to mandate it, uh, for particular professions, uh, first responder personnel, uh, police firefighters, uh, healthcare workers, um, among other things, despite the fact that the Pentagon, um, and other groups using this particular, uh, anthrax vaccine produced by what is now Emergent Biosolutions were going to cut them out of the picture entirely because of safety concerns, because they were a very corrupt company, among other things. And of course, they were collaborating with Patel. Um, <laughs> to save yeah. their anthrax vaccine um, right before uh, the anthrax attack. So there seems to be some parallels um, there. But I think um, a, a very important parallel that we do see uh, between 9-11 anthrax and also what's going on right now um, is the, the use of fear 
Um, so um, to wrap up here, uh, the last question uh, I will be asking before we conclude, um, and you're welcome to add anything you'd like after this. Um, what do 9-11 and anthrax and our current reality uh, tell us about the use of fear by public officials and intelligence agencies on their populations? Well, um, thank you, Whitney. I'm not sure I, I can think of any, anything very brilliant. I agree with you that that was the main weapon. Um, in 9-11, it was decided that this would be dramatic. It would be, in effect, a blockbuster movie shown around the world. It would scare the hell out of people. You have some terrible footage that has survived from 9-11, which I used once or twice in presentations. Uh, it's not the pornography of violence, but it shows the fear. You have this guy watching one of the towers come down, and he starts saying, oh, my God, and he can't stop. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And everybody is crying. And you, you get to see what a psychological operation actually looks like. There it is. It's on film. And 9-11 was the most dramatic case of it. Anthrax was, as I've said before, more intimate. It was like, okay, anybody could get this in the mail. It doesn't matter if you live in New York or Washington. And there were all kinds of newspaper articles about anxiety about anthrax, fear about anthrax, Congress terrified of anthrax. And I think I'd have no idea how many people really were scared, but the media clearly wanted them to be scared and and they helped, kept promoting it. So and, and of course, at the moment, we are seeing this in an absurd way. I mean, I, you know, I, I can hardly believe, you know, the way this is being promoted. Fear, fear, fear everywhere. And I suggest people turn off their uh, their TV and, you know, you don't have to take that in. Any more than you need to take a toxic vaccine. Um, so yeah, that's that's a major driver, uh, and there are all kinds of biochemical uh, um, mechanisms here, which I'm not an expert in. But basically, when you retreat to that reptilian back brain, you know, and you're terrified and you're you're panicky and you're extremely anxious, you don't tend to think rationally. And you tend, it appears, to throw yourself into the arms of whoever is promising to save you, which happens usually to be the government. And I'm trying to tell people, you know, get out of the fear, calm down, and begin to think rationally and begin begin to critically read things. Uh, because fear will turn you into a subhuman in a way if you're not careful. Well, yeah, and it will also easily make you easily moldable for the designs of people you're supposedly against and who a lot of people going along with all of this right now, uh, used to openly criticize and, and blame for a lot of the world's problems and now are, you know, uh, <laughs> suddenly trustworthy. I mean, I think the, um, obviously a lot's been said about Bill Gates, for example, in the past year and a half, the people that like to uh, assert that his vaccine, quote unquote, philanthropy, uh, that there's nothing shady there. They seem to forget that, um, you know, he's also a major evangelist for Monsanto and the so-called green revolution and claims that, um, GMO debt slavery will help feed the third world when instead it pollutes their environment, uh, exacerbates uh, hunger uh, issues in those areas of the world and has led to a huge jump in farmer suicides in places like India yes. and places yes. where it's been implemented. So to say that he, you know, cares about, about the little people and all of that when it comes to vaccines, but not with this other stuff, you know, people just aren't thinking, like you say, they're not thinking rationally. And I think uh, this time in particular, um, 
that particular fear that's being generated in people is being used to sort of herd them into uh, things that are being f- framed as collectivism. Um, yes, uh, yes. Both with public health and also with climate change, as it's now called. And, uh, you know, what's odd about that, of course, is that it's being framed as collectivist, but the solutions are not collectivist at all. Um, and that it would just really entrench and worsen inequality and the control of, um, the economic elite over everything. And, uh, you know, people just can't, um, unfortunately see it because it's, um, fear from, from every angle, it seems. Um, and like you were saying, the only way out of this is to step out of the fear. Um, and apply critical thinking to what's going on, which seems to be, uh, less and less in vogue these days. <laughs> but ever, I guess you yeah. could argue that makes it, um, all the more, uh, important. So thank you, uh, Graham, for your time and for being a consistently, uh, rational voice, uh, about what's going on today and also, uh, what happened 20 years ago and, and other issues as well. Um, is there, uh, any, uh, work you'd like to promote or a website or, uh, could you tell people where they can purchase your, uh, book on the anthrax attacks if they're interested? Oh, they can find it on Amazon. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> All right. If they can't, if they can't spell my name, just look at the title: "The 2001 Anthrax Deception," and they'll find it. And you can also buy it from Clarity Press if you prefer, which is who had the, the press that had the courage to publish it. Um, so Clarity, uh, C L A R I T Y, you can purchase it there. Um, and there are lots of thing points I could make and things I could contribute, Whitney. But I think we've already uh, hammered our listeners pretty well. And so I, <laughs> yeah. Tends I, I to happen. Want, <laughs> you know, I, I, I want to thank you not just for the interview, but you, you know you are one of the bright hopes as far as I'm concerned. Because a lot of people like me are on our way out. I mean, we're getting old and we won't, won't be able to keep this up very very long. So it's really important to know there are people to continue this work. Thanks so much. Wow, thanks. Uh, that's very humbling. And I really appreciate that. Well, um, uh, I might get a little awkward now to wrap up this episode since I'm not, a- <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, uh, compliments are, are very nice and, and very appreciated. And, and thanks a lot, Graham. And um, that, that means a lot coming coming from you. So um, I guess with that, I will, uh, we'll just wrap up this episode uh, here. So thanks everyone uh, for listening, especially people who support this podcast. Um, in the next couple weeks, uh, uh, not only will there be, uh, you know, the regular audio podcast, but I do have some video, uh, podcasts planned, one with James Corbett about, uh, China and its role in things that are going on right now. Um, and how, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> Uh, there's a lot to be said there. Um, and also, um, I'll, uh, hopefully be doing a wrap up, uh, sometime in October about some of what we talked about, uh, today about the anthrax attacks. Uh, because of course the 20th anniversary of, of that coming on the scene, uh, is, is, uh, quickly approaching. So, uh, maybe Robbie Martin or some, uh, or maybe just me, we'll see, uh, we'll be, uh, covering, covering that and discussing its, um, implications, uh, for today. So, um, with, yeah, with that, uh, thanks so much for listening and catch you all in the next episode. <laughs>